Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleuré of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Doubleree Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingalls Reads, you get prompt communication, reads, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I'm in a good mood because it's spring break. Springtime in, well, I'm in Michigan. (laughs) I was going to say springtime in Mississippi, but I'm not there right now. (laughs) How is Michigan? Michigan is very cold. I try to go outside as little as possible because (laughs) it's very cold. But in Mississippi right now, it is absolutely perfect weather. The flowers are blooming. We get a little rain shower every day. It's perfect. How are you spending your spring break? Well, similarly to you, but not because the weather's bad, just because I'm an introvert and I don't like to leave the house if I don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Is that an introvert thing or is that a different thing? (laughs) Well, I think it's technically a recluse thing, (laughs) but, you know, staying at home, being in PJ pants, practicing and working on reads to my heart's content, that type of thing, you know how I like to live my best life. Are you completely head to toe in leopard print right now? I'm not. I'm actually um, dressed for the day for a change. I went to lunch with a colleague (laughs) and friend. Look at you. Earlier today. Yes, I was social. (laughs) And I'm super excited because we're going to see each other here soon. Just a little over a week. We are going to the University of Florida double read day to do a live podcast taping. It's going to be awesome. And I'm going to feed all of my bad reads to an alligator while I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) I am scared of alligators. I've been in Gainesville before and I was like, so is this really a thing? And they're like, yeah, it's really a thing. They're not unicorns. There are gators here. And I was like, (laughs) okay. Jackie, alligators need good reads too. Well, they can't have any of mine. (laughs) But, you know, we're holding back. We buried the lead. That's not our only upcoming live show. Ooh, we're so excited about this. Double Read Dish is going to be live at IDRS in Tampa in July 2019. We are so so excited. And you all should come watch us make complete fools of ourselves on stage. Oh my God. Can I tell the story about (laughs) the last live podcast we did? Which by the way is released. If you want to listen to us to get a taste, a little sampling of what we're going to be offering in Tampa, (laughs) you can listen to what we did at Miami of Ohio. And yet you have a little behind the scenes reveal that is not on the podcast episode. (laughs) Thank God. So this was the first time that we had done like an hour to ourselves live podcast episode in front of an audience. And it went over like gangbusters. It was 
so fun Mm -hmm. and funny and amazing. And I loved it so much, but I was really nervous because we hadn't done this before. <laughs> so, Right. We'd done like behind the scenes, come up to the table yeah. for a question, not like live in front of a studio audience, you know? Right. <laughs> so um, you and I are standing backstage while our host Ryan Reynolds introduces us. And you look at me and you're like, I am so proud of us. Look what we get to do. And we're having like an emotional moment. And I am pretty overwhelmed. And then we walk on stage and I walk directly into a chair. <laughs> Just bam. And then I miss my cue. It was classic. It was adorable. <laughs> it was the most perfect way to start. I could have ever not planned. <laughs> anyway, my plan is not to do that at IDRS. I don't know about you, but Miami gave me a lot of ideas for things. We can't tell you what will be featured at our live show in Tampa because at this point, we don't exactly know. We're just kind of brainstorming and figuring out what's going to be the most fun, the most entertaining that we could possibly bring. But we have some ideas. We have so many ideas. It's going to be amazing. So if you're in the Gainesville area on March 23rd, come out to the University of Florida double read day. And if you are attending IDRS this summer in Tampa, um, please come to our live show. It's going to be really fun. And we're not just doing the live show. We both had proposals accepted to perform at IDRS, which is very cool. What are you going to be doing there? I'm going to be performing read trios with my uh, faculty read trio from USM with Kim Woolley and Jackie McElwain. We are the Magnolia Read Trio, and we are going to do a little 30-minute read trio recital of American music. It's going to be great. What are you doing, Jackie? I am going to be doing one of my pieces from an upcoming faculty recital of pieces by Native American composers for bassoon, which except for the couple of commissions that I've done don't really exist. So there are a lot of transcriptions featured on the program. And one of the pieces, The Mountain on the Sun by Lewis Ballard, which is originally for unaccompanied solo violin, which I have transcribed for solo bassoon, I will be playing in Tampa. So this interview that we have on this episode with Jacqueline LeClaire is such a fortifying, heartening, positive approach to oboe playing. And we also have an unintended special guest star in the interview, which is the really intense Mississippi thunderstorm that happens about halfway in. So you're going to hear some thunder and you're going to hear some rain, but it's not going to detract from the amazing things that Jacqueline LeClaire has to say about all things oboe. I mean, we really cover the gamut with this one. Well, and we also asked a question if she had any recommendations of hidden gems in the contemporary repertoire, because as you're about to hear, she's really engaged in contemporary music. And at the time, nothing was coming to mind. And so I went ahead and cut that out. But then we got a follow up from her after the interview was over. She recommends Parking Violation by Mark Mellitz, which is a piece for solo oboe with reverb. And you can find this piece on his website. There's a recording of it. And you can also purchase the score from his website. M-A-R-C-M-E-L-L-I-T-S is the composer Mark Mellitz. And I listened to it and it is really cool. And I am going to learn it. So thank you so much for that extra recommendation for our oboe listeners. You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall, it's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers. And who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. 
Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender read knife, maintenance kit, read knife sharpening book, cutting block, and read tool row. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. We are tremendously excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Jacqueline LeClaire, Associate Professor of Oboe at McGill University's Schulich School of Music. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Thank you so much. Could we start by having you tell us how you came to the oboe? Sure. Uh, I went to um, a, a private school outside of Syracuse, New York. It was called Manlius Pebble Hill School. And it was um, I was in first grade, second grade, third grade, through sixth grade there. And in first grade, we all learned to read music and to sing with our music teacher, Mrs. Robertson. I, I remember that. It was really fun. And she would have us switch parts, so she somehow got us to read music. I have no idea how. And in second grade, we all went to another building to an instrumental music teacher, uh, Marcel Lowe. So I was seven, and we learned um, recorder, all of us. There were about seven or eight kids in my class. So we all learned recorder, and I guess I stuck with it for the rest of the whole year. And uh, in, in the end, when I was eight, Mrs. Lowe wrote a, a note home to my mother suggesting that I switch to oboe. She said the fingering transition was easy, and I, she thought I was a musical person, whatever that means. And, um, and then she said, she wrote, with some practice, Jackie could, do very, could go far. She, she underlined some. I think she's under the impression I wasn't really practicing the recording. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know the oboe from a hole in the ground. Uh, but I took the, the note home to my mom and, and wanted to get it right away. And I remember she put it on the washing machine, and I, which was taller than I was, and I wasn't allowed to touch it. I remember looking at the case sort of at my eyeball level, thinking, oh, I wanted to open it, but I wasn't allowed to. <laughs> So exciting. Yeah. So I started oboe lessons with Mrs. Lowe at school. And she taught me things like um, I should take the bubble gum out of my mouth before playing. <laughs> <laughs> she explained to me that that was actually not okay. <laughs> we are here to debunk those myths. <laughs> well, when you're eight, you know, you just sort of do what you think is best and then learn that maybe it's different. <laughs> When did you decide to go into professional oboe playing? Did you have an aha moment or was it a gradual realization? Well, uh, I decided to become a professional oboist when I was nine after I'd been playing for one year. And I know that because I figured I had to learn how to say that to adults because they often would ask, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I didn't know the word oboist. So I had to research it, and I, and I learned, and I practiced in my bedroom. I stood there alone, and I practiced saying, I am going to become a professional oboist, which is actually quite a mouthful when you're at any age, but when you're nine. So I, um, yeah, so I was ready. That's what I, that's what I decided, and I, I never went back. That was it. So can you talk to us about embarking on your professional journey and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, I, I, I just I followed an educational path that seemed something that would reasonably lead to becoming a professional musician. I, I took lessons with uh, professional oboists whenever I could, even people like William Christ in, in, um, outside of Los Angeles when I was visiting my uncle there. I went to summer music camps. I was lucky to have very fine oboe professors in Sarasota, Florida, where I moved to go to high school with my my family and I went to high school there. It was a performing arts high school. Um, then I attended the Eastman School of Music, studied with uh, Richard Kilmer. Um, I was very lucky to have very fine uh, training, uh, I can see, especially in retrospect. Uh, then I f- continued straight into graduate school when I was 21 and studied with wonderful Ronald Roseman uh, at SUNY Stony Brook. Just one thing after the other, year after year, I just was oboe, oboe, oboe. And when I was in my third year after the, of graduate study, I took an audition in New York City. It's funny, truth be told, I didn't really prepare at all for it. It was just all the standard excerpts we'd play since 
were teenagers, you know, tombo, and I think I played the Strauss Concerto Exposition, and I and I I won the job. It was for a, the orchestra in Oviedo, Spain. They had dissolved the Franco period orchestra, um, and spent two or three years planning a new orchestra, and they they started from scratch. Really, is my understanding. Uh, this was 1991 when they held the um, auditions in 91. They held them in, in London and, and Madrid and all, all in Paris and, and New York, all over the place. And they wound up hiring 65 or so of us from 15 different countries, most of us young, but some older musicians from uh, Russia. So it was quite an adventure. Um, yes, so they, they called me up in New York and when I was still a graduate student, offered me the job and I thought for two seconds and then agreed, like, what the heck, why not? So at age 24, I moved to Spain to take an orchestra job. And I had always figured that was the pinnacle of success, you know, getting a principal oboe job. And so I went, and I, and I loved it. It was a great experience. I really value those three years I spent in Spain. And But I came to the realization that that wasn't really enough. That wasn't really a good fit for me. As much as I love orchestra, <clears throat> and it's wonderful repertoire and, and all of that, um, I really craved... Um, a variety of music experience, you know, especially chamber music, solo, uh, contemporary music. I, I, I really thrive. I came to realize I really would thrive best in, in with a mix of challenges as a as an artist. So I made the decision to move to New York City. <laughs> I figured where else do I go? I'm American, and so I kind of went as a kind of a pilgrim to New York City to see what I could do. Um, and eventually started um, freelancing. Uh, I had some friends there from graduate school and from undergrad and formed a wind quintet. And we, we actually, we got together as a wind quintet motivated by interest in new music and to get together at Juilliard or at uh, Manhattan School of Music and where some of them are still students to, um, to read through new quintets. Uh, but our horn player at the time, Greg Evans, dear friend of mine, um, he he got us contracts with Midori and Friends Foundation and with Carnegie Hall Neighborhood Concert Series. So we actually did a lot of work and even recitals as a wind quintet. We were called uh, the Vanguard Chamber Player. And that we played together for years. Um, it was wonderful. Um, and other freelancing. And just as freelancing works, you know, one thing leads to another. And I, uh, I freelanced uh, in New York City and started teaching. I started teaching when I was about 27 years old at Manus College in the preparatory division. Um, and I discovered that, A, I didn't know how to teach, <laughs> therefore I needed to learn how to teach. And then once I did learn how to teach uh, pretty well, I, I decided it's wonderful. It's it's rewarding. It's it's challenging. It's interesting. And I was learning a lot. Uh, so I continued studying um, pedagogy and eventually decided after I was a, after I was in New York about 10 years, yeah, 10 years, I realized, you know, I love this. I, I'm completely happy. It's very fulfilling freelancing in New York City. I never want to leave. And I thought to myself, aha, now would be a smart time to leave, you know, sort of in a sense, cash in my chips. I uh, had a lot of experience and, and had cultivated this rather unexpected love for teaching. Um, and I went back to school, to uh, Stony Brook, to finish my doctoral degree. Um, and I did so, which was quite challenging because I was supporting myself and, uh, you know, freelancing full-time. But, you know, I was also a quote-unquote full-time student, so that was quite a lot. Um, but I managed to do it. And then I was lucky enough to apply for and receive a full-time tenure-track job at uh, Bowling Green State University in uh, Ohio, wonderful uh, school of music. And I was very happy there for five years. Uh, I was still freelancing quite a bit in New York City. Uh, back and forth is quite easy from uh, Ohio. Um, so that was great. Uh, I taught at Manhattan School of Music in their contemporary performance program. And then, rather unexpectedly, uh, McGill University's School of Music in invited me to apply for their position they were creating, Woodward Area Chair. I guess preference for oboe, not sure. So, of course, I applied. Um, I was... I started at Bowling Green when I was 40 years old, having returned to New York City when I was 27. So I guess that's 13 years. So I, then I taught at Bowling Green for 
five years, at, at which point uh, I, I auditioned for the McGill job. And, and to my amazement, they offered me a job and I decided to take it. So that was in 2012. So after five years in Ohio. And so this is my seventh year here. And um, so these seven years I've been you know, learning the Canadian system's different. Uh, um, I'm trying to be a good employee here and a very international school. So that's similar to New York. Um, and I've been playing concerts regularly all this time in New York City, which is really rewarding as well. And so now I'm just continuing. But, uh, you know, sometimes a, a career sounds like a carefully laid plan. But a lot of things that happen in a career that someone might mention when they're introducing an artist are often surprises. You know, I didn't anticipate or plan many of the things I've done, but it's more a question of taking opportunities when they uh, arise, I guess. Yeah, I'd love to ask you more about that because I, I think what you said is correct that many people consider an orchestral job as the pinnacle of a career. And you've just described to us two instances where you could have been happy or you could have, I don't want to say settled, but said, this is good enough. And you chose to follow a different path really intentionally, first returning to New York and then embarking in academia. Was that courage of conviction kind of there within you or was it a struggle to follow your inner voice? I think throughout my life, I'm a big believer in following my gut, if you will of just sitting quietly and, and, and kind of ignoring those, what can be sort of loud voices in terms of your just thinking, you know, your, your frontal lobe and try to quiet that down and, and really just to try to get in touch with what your instinct is. I'm a big believer in just following that. And I, I find that very convincing. So yeah, when making a big decision to, to try to be calm and healthy at the time, if at all possible, and go less with maybe logic, as strange as that might sound, maybe not so much with logic or what would be prudent or what you should do, and to just go with what your instincts are. I think that's what I've done. I mean, it's hard to say, but I think so. You are an incredible resource in contemporary music. You have published guides on skills that a contemporary musician on the oboe should need, published an edition of the Berio Sequenza. Why is contemporary music so important to you? And what does it bring you in terms of artistic satisfaction? I, I think I always was interested in, in contemporary music with, uh, whenever I would hear it uh, as a youngster, I never really thought about it that much. But I, I can recall being, you know, my interest being piqued by a Nielsen Symphony or, or something, or Persichetti's Parable, and think, ah, oh, that's interesting. Um, and then, uh, but my studies were all the normal tonal, rep, you know, just Barrett, Fairling, tonal music, ensemble training, wind quintets, all that kind of thing at Eastman. And uh, one of my fellow students, a composer, James W. Bennett III, he, I think he got a bunch of us together to play some new music concerts just on our own at Eastman, not with any uh, faculty uh, guiding us. And we did a concert of Elliot Carter's music, which was quite a big endeavor. We, we played Amir, I was involved with Amir on Well. Uh, we also did a concert of Charles Warren's music. And I was, this was all new to me. Um, it was really the brainchild of this composition student, and we got very enthusiastic about it. And I and I found that I found it very interesting, and and I was curious and uh, interested to see how I could do the things that the music was asking me to do. You know, a mirror on which dwell has a high A and, and multiphonics and so on in in this fast little inventive move, movement called sandpiper. I thought it was very exciting and fun and interesting and poetic. Uh, and Richard Kilmer encouraged me as my teacher. That was a, that was a helpful key to uh, my success. Um, and we, we actually applied to be in residence after graduating, in residence at Rutgers University, Music School of Music. And um, we, we, we were planning to. There, there were about seven of us, and we called ourselves also the Band of Chamber Players. <laughs> Why? I don't know. And that we were planning to do that, and that fell through uh, the spring when I was going to graduate. I remember it was April 1st, 1988. And that suddenly just 
evaporated. It was not going to happen. So uh, we all went to our plan B. And my plan B was going to Stony Brook, uh, which turned out to be really, really fortunate for me because Mr. Roseman helped me a great deal develop as a as an instrumentalist i mean physical technique um and also as a musician uh, in a big way i have his picture right here on my desk i even though he died in 2000 i still learn from him just about every day he was just such a powerful mentor <laughs> so um one fork of the tony stony Brook experience is that as an oboist and, and personal musician mr rosen was just so great by the way he was also very into early music he played shawm um, and, but also very inter interested in new music. Uh, as a person, he was a musician in the New York Wind Quintet for decades. His friend and uh, fellow artist Sam, Sam Barron was teaching flute there, who was just wonderful. Uh, he, Sam Barron coached me in um, the Finisterra duo and the Thea Musgrave uh, impromptu flute. I was just so lucky, and many wonderful teachers were there. And it was very small, it was al almost entirely graduate students. I'm still fast friends with a lot of the people who were studying there at the time. And there was lots and lots of new music. Arthur Weisberg was conducting, the, I mean, the eminent Arthur Weisberg, may he rest in peace, he was conducting the new music ensemble there. And we just had boatloads of, of new music to, to learn and to perform. And it was just in the air. It was the milieu. We played normal music as well, normal meaning, you know old music, um, Baroque, classical, romantic, early 20th century, as one does in the orchestra and other integrated music, but um, other chamber music. Uh, but at that time, uh, there was just lots and lots and lots of activity and interest at Stony Brook in new music. Um, so I really just sort of was swept up in that and with my friends and, and um, having fun with it. And of course, I was young and that's when I learned to, to, to flutter tongue and do all kinds of things I didn't know not to you know I, no one had ever told me it was impossible so I just did it, it was right there on the page I was like Ernst Krennick's Fierstuka you know it says flutter tongue so I flutter tongue <laughs> you know, no problem um, later on I realized oh that's not a normal way to flutter tongue but I like it, it works great so I was just innocent and innocently charged forward and learned this and that and had a wonderful time it was great fun and as it turned out, when I went back to New York City, I, I wound up doing a, a good amount of uh, contemporary music. And they're just, for whatever reason, there weren't tons and tons of oboists in New York City who had an appetite for that kind of thing. And I did. So I enjoyed it. I, I didn't plan it. I, I thought maybe I'd work on Broadway shows. but And eventually I did some Broadway shows. But it just turned out that I played a lot of contemporary music and of course recordings are often needed because work is new they're often premiered um, at that time in the early and mid 90s or mid 90s late 90s i should say the new york times and wall street journal for example were very interested in, in the kinds of concerts i and my colleagues were playing so we were often reviewed in the new york times um it was a great time it, you know we ran the ensembles we wrote the newsletters, we raised the money, we applied for grants from the government, from private foundations, we rented the halls, we commissioned the composers, we bought food for the reception. I mean, you know, it was just a DIY uh, period of time, not making a lot of money, but making a lot of art and making a lot of passionate culture and friendship. So um, it was it was wonderful. And then, well, I, I guess I can't, I kind of became aware that not a lot of people were comfortable, by people I mean oboists, not a lot of oboists were um, as familiar with various so-called extended techniques as, as I was comfortable with, you know, when I was like 30, 35. And, and I thought, oh, gee, well, maybe I should share my ideas, you know, I mean, that could be useful for people, that might be helpful, because I enjoy, you know, being able to do these things, I suppose other people would enjoy it too. That's when I started giving master classes, I think the first one I gave was at my alma mater, at Eastman, Mr. Kilmer had me up. That's when I started writing the handouts, you know, writing the documents about flutter tongue or multiphonics or whatever it is, circular breathing. And it's just funny, I guess, after a certain number of years of doing a lot of one thing, in my case, contemporary music, although I was playing earlier music as well, I started being introduced as a so-called expert in contemporary music, expert in um, extended techniques. And, you know, I never intended to become an expert in anything. I just whatever music I'm playing, whether it's Bach or Mozart or... Brahms or Xenakis, uh, I just try to do it really well. But it's a funny thing with perception that my name has been associated with some prominent contemporary music, then I become this expert, so I, I just smile, you know. <laughs> um, 
I don't really consider myself an expert in anything. I just try to do everything well. But sure, it, I, I find it gratifying to be able to to help others. You know, it's once in a while I get a note that one of my tutorials online has helped somebody learn to search their breathe. That's a great. That makes my day. Um, the Barrio Sequenza, I've written about that that story. That was just something I did when I was in Spain. And, and when I got back to the United States, I wound up meeting with Barrio and I was able to convince him to publish my edition. Very fortuitous. That whole story I wrote in the Edgar Journal. Well, and we'll be sure to link to that article in the show notes for this episode. And actually, your handout on flutter tonguing, I'm a bassoonist, but that's how I learned how to flutter tongue. So oh, I've awesome. definitely reaped the benefits of some of those work. <laughs> As you look over the course of your career thus far, I wonder if any of the commissions that you've been a part of stick out in your mind as favorites. Oh, gosh. There's just so many. <laughs> I, I, um, I coordinated the commission of the Bernard Rand solo, Memo 8, to, to honor uh, Richard Kilmer's, we had been, I don't know, 20 years at that time, his 20, first 20 years at the Eastman School of Music. He's finished 35 years now. He's still teaching. But at that time, I had worked with Bernard Rand's uh, wonderful Welsh-American composer. And he, he has a series, not unlike his friend Luciano Berrio, he also has a series of solo pieces called Memos over coffee and so on. He, he expressed an interest in writing one for oboe. And I thought, oh, well, that, what a great opportunity. Maybe I could use that opportunity to honor Mr. Kilmer, one of my two main mentors. It's just so great for a whole, it's almost like a family of us who studied oboe with him at, at Eastman School of Music. So I contacted the, uh, I think there were about 104 alumni at that time, many more now. And we put our funds together and, and uh, commissioned uh, Mr. Rance to write that piece. So uh, that, that has a soft spot in my heart, I think. And we all sort of, each of us could perform a, a you know, quote unquote premiere. And so that was a nice um, group effort to honor Mr. Kilmer. But yeah, there's, there's so many. Gosh, if, if you gave me a pencil and paper and asked me to start writing them all down, I'm sure it would be a task. <laughs> if there is a listener listening to you right now talk about the joys of contemporary music and they haven't dived in yet, where is a good place for them to begin? Well, you know, it's it's the same today as it was in the 1700s where people just Musicians knew composers, composers knew people. They have a, a beer or, or a coffee at a cafe and just talk about it. And they agree to write a piece and play the piece. And just it's really friendship um, and camaraderie and community, uh, to, to my way of thinking. There are now, I'm 52 years old, and there's people I've been playing a lot of new music with for probably 30 years. Well, 25 years, I suppose. 25 years. And I would... I would say we share really a love for each other. It's it's not just camaraderie or something. There, there's kind of a deep love that we share so many hours of studying this music, so many hours of shaping our minds to be flexible, to be plastic, you know, intellectually, to be able to figure out the new music languages, that requirements to that to make the music really come alive and might be different from anything we've done before to shape ourselves, to benefit the music. It's hard work, but it's very fun, interesting work. And it's, it's some of the most rewarding things that experiences I've had in my life. You know, not only do you come out at, at the other end with a recording and with a good performance and all that, but it's really the make the quality of the experience. It's very, very lively. It's very respectful. You have to be confident, but also very um, sensitive and humble at the same time. I just recommend the experience to, and also, of course, it goes without saying, working with composers who are in the room with you, or at least now uh, connected virtually, it really makes me happy to provide that composer that uh, the pleasure and value of a good experience. That's, that's very rewarding. I mean, I'm sure Beethoven appreciates it too in some way, but it's, it's a little different when the person's still alive mm -hmm. and um, they can receive the benefit of what we offer them as performers uh, and also give us feedback. So um, a good place to start, I think, is with a friend who writes music, finding something you like. And in new music, there's new music for everybody, no matter what kind of music you like. There's music being written today that is just exactly like that even neo-baroque or neo-romantic or 
minimalist or post-minimalist. It doesn't have to be atonal. It could be any musical language. It's all being written today. So, um, But I really think it's about community and, and, and friendships and participating and enjoying it. You know, that's, that's the way I think about it. Continuing on with this idea of community, you've already mentioned several really special collaborations that you've been a part of. Are there any others that stand out in your mind that you'd love to talk to us about? Well, I, um, I've been lucky the last, I don't know, 10 years or something to, be, to play with Ensemble Signal. Uh, it's led by conductor and percussionist Brad Lubman. He teaches conducting at the Eastman School of Music. And I met him at Stony Brook. We've been friends for uh, 25 years. And Ensemble Signal does um, a concerts every year, and a lot of them include oboe, and I'm happy to play with them when I can. And we collaborate with Steve Reich, um, which is a great pleasure. Brad and, and Steve Reich are, are very good friends. Um, we're about to play a world premiere by Steve Reich. I'm waiting to get the music right now. As a matter of fact, <laughs> that's going to be at the new venue in New York City. Uh, it's called The Shed on 30th Street. That's a brand new venue that's about an interdisciplinary performance venue that's about to open. Ice and Signal are two of the first um, ensembles to perform there. We have a program we're doing, and uh, I just I just feel so happy to play with Signal. It's incredibly rewarding. Again, a real feeling of family and a shared mission, you know, a shared spiritual community of, of music making. It's, it's very important to me. In a couple of weeks, we're playing at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. to honor the memory of Oliver Nusson, who passed away in early July, who was a great friend of the ensemble. And, and again, it's, it's very sad, but to, to come together and to play his music and to honor his memory it means a lot. You know, it really does mean everything. We did a concert of his music in his memory in October in Buffalo, and now we're doing another one at the Library of Congress. So... Just another example of how deep those rivers run. Friendship is, is a huge part of the new music community. It really is. What is the best read-making advice that you give to your students or maybe the best read-making advice that you have received? I started making reads when I was about 10 years old. I started very, very young. And so by the time I was 13, I was uh, making reads on my own. I didn't really think a whole lot about it. I, always, I think I always enjoyed it. I sort of just dived right into it and, and, and just great guns, just made reads like a maniac. I, I, I just thought it was terrific. I still do. I, I love read making. It's one of my most favorite things to do. Um, I don't do it a lot because, you know, one has to practice the oboe in English horn. But, but when I do make reads, I, I just love it. So I normally make reads uh, at the end of the day when I can't practice anymore. Then I'll just do, you know, 50 minutes or so, an hour of read making before I go home. But, but again, not every day. And sometimes weeks go by, I don't do read-making because I already have all the read-making. So uh, advice, if I were to give advice, I would I would advise to be wary of myths. As, as brilliant as everyone in our community is, some of us believe things that aren't true. And I, I think life is challenging enough sticking to things that are true. So to be, be wary of, of myths and to be extremely logical and, and joyful uh, as you make reads. But if, when you take the knife or whatever it is, usually a knife, and, and make a change on a read, to be very, very logical. And to, I, the read needs to vibrate more or less. And this is what I'm going to do. And that's what the result's going to be. And then try it. Is it, is it? Is that the case? And to be as super, super consistent as possible. You know, to I, I, I try to approach read making the way maybe Rolls-Royce approaches car making. You know, I want a really good result at the end. And in order to do that, I want to control all the variables as much as I possibly can. I can't control the piece of dried grass that we make the read out of, the cane, but I can do everything I possibly can to control the processing of it and the other equipment. My approach to read making, and if anybody would care to interpret those advice, is to be very happy about it, to get the best possible equipment and supplies you can, to be super logical and consistent, to do it with a smile on your face, except when you're playing, don't smile. Just, and make a lot of reads. I'm looking at my desk here. I have a ton of reads, you know. That So hopefully, knock on wood, no matter what happens, you've got at least a good read. Um, but it's a source of great pleasure in my life. And I love teaching, showing people how to make reads. When you are listening to auditions for people who want to study with you at McGill, a very renowned music school, 
What makes a student stick out as interesting and makes you intrigued to work with them? How do you decide who to accept into your degree programs? Uh, you know, it means a lot that someone is interested in applying. And I think it, it's, it's a, uh, of course, it goes without saying it's a big plus if someone has a skill on the instrument and can play. And if they're making their own reads, terrific. But, you know, if they're not, um, people can learn read making very, very quickly. I think what is a big deal is someone seems interested and curious and eager and positive and has some imagination of what the oboe might be for them in the future, which could be a portfolio career. Um, it could be a career in sound recording, but they want to play the oboe. It could be a career in science, but they love playing the oboe uh, and will take that into their, the rest of their lives with them. Or it could be they want to uh, try to get an orchestra job. It's all fantastic. And uh, really for me to have a, a certain level of skill uh, is, is great. But having the, the attitude that seems like um, – reflective of those positive qualities that make for a beautiful life in music, you know, openness, flexibility, um, sweetness, working hard, enjoying work. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm happiest when I'm working really. <laughs> so, um, so those, those, those qualities kind of shine and, and are a real plus in my view. So piggybacking off of loving to work, what do you do to find balance for the times that, Maybe you shouldn't be working all the time. Do you have any activities that you use to relax? I, I, I do confess I, I probably work too much. I, I, really do, <laughs> um, I really do love work. The idea of, of um, facilitating the path for, for students and, and helping them advance quickly and to have a good experience, any benefit I can offer students, I find that really, really inspiring and really very motivating. So I find myself working probably more than is normal, <laughs> and I'm very happy doing it. But I think it's, it's also very important to be healthy, uh, both uh, mentally as much as possible and physically as much as possible. So to, to walk a great deal as long as possible. In, in Montreal, it's a little hard in the winter, but that's okay. To, to exercise, and I enjoy uh, doing what I can in creative ways to find good food to eat, which sounds like a pretty basic thing to say, but I think that's important too, to, um, to be as wise as, as, as one can be to, to keep the body and mind uh, functioning well, because, you know, the body is your primary musical instrument. The oboe or the English horn is a secondary instrument. Um, it's the body that makes the music and the mind. So um, to, to every day to do it what's possible to thrive and, and when you, so that when you do pick up the oboe, when you do sit down and make reads, you feel really, really good. As someone who has to learn very difficult music, um, I'm interested in how you approach practice, either how you structure practice across your day or if there are any particular approaches to learning, especially something that maybe you didn't grow up playing, you're encountering for the first time. Uh, I'd love to hear your approach to that. Um, to resist the urge to just jump in and start playing it the way it goes, that, that in my view, is uh, probably a mistake. I know the music is right there on the stand. I know I can pick up my elbow. I know I could start thrashing through it. It's not a good idea because it, it's, it, lacks, it could lack thoughtfulness. So first understand who wrote the piece, why they wrote the piece, and to to, if at all possible, get the score and try to figure out what the piece is all about, what's going on. And increasingly, that's that's possible with, with PDFs online and so on. To, to really sort of get the why of the piece. What, what's the reason uh, for this, this work? What's going on with it? How 3D and technicolor of a imagination of the piece can I have? Hmm. Um, and then examine my part, hopefully in relationship to the other parts, and to get a sense of what's there. And if there's anything that jumps out as, oh, it might be challenging, or, oh, that's a complex rhythm, or, oh, that's a, that's a, a multiphonic that has the wrong fingering or something, uh, then to, to resist any possibility of, of having a negative feeling about it. And if anything in the piece pushes that button, like, oh, it looks scary, or, then that's my signal to love that part the best and to pull it apart and make it manageable and find a way to be successful with it. That is the 
primary, primary tenet of good practice, success. Find a way to experience success with whatever it is. No negative feelings, no fear, absolutely no fear. Uh, anything on any page, uh, with very few exceptions, can be done successfully if you approach it right. And then once you, it may be playing the first note. Okay, well, don't worry about the second note. Play the first note. And then there you go. That's successful. Very good. Now let's go on. Um, and to build on success. Every time we play a, a wrong note, it's kind of a step backwards. So not to punish ourselves, but to realize, you know, we really should try to avoid that. We really should practice in such a way that everything is of the quality we want on stage with us in Carnegie Hall. Because I, I believe that all your practice goes on stage with you, not just the good practice. So I, I feel very highly incentivized to make as much of my practice very, very good, very cheerful, very happy, very imaginative, and very well under control, always with a metronome or almost always with a metronome in lots of creative ways. And uh, to try to practice everything you're going to play in concert four or five different ways at least, to, to put on the metronome and play a passage slower and then speed it up it's not bad, but it's not at all uh, complete. I have a rule for myself. Anything I'm going to perform, I have to be able to play really, really well in great detail, but completely slurred. So everything speaking successfully um, with no articulation. Um, I think that's a tremendous plus. Great practice for me anyway. Um, and to play in different rhythms again, really with variety. I, I, I refer to the F word a lot in my teaching, flexibility. <laughs> <laughs> to be as flexible as possible and to practice flexibly, to to perform flexibly. It's really a variety. If you practice a passage five different ways or six different ways successfully, then you can reassemble it and play it as written with relative ease. People sometimes ask me, what's my favorite piece on a concert? It's like, my favorite piece is the one I'm playing at the time, you know? Mm -hmm. when I, to really love what you're doing. When I walk off the stage, I might say to myself, oh, God, I... I never want to play that again. But up until I finish the last note of the piece, I really, truly love the piece. I really do. I'm not faking it. I really, really do everything I can to show that piece as the best piece in the world that I possibly can. doesn't mean I'll play it again, but uh, at the time, it's, it's important. It's not my job to criticize a piece um, that I'm playing. It's my job to support it and try to understand it the best I can and show it in the best possible light with an open heart and really positive spirit um, and serve it the best I can. The practice has to be in that spirit, doesn't it? Right? Mm -hmm. if, if I practice begrudgingly or if I pra practice in a frustrated way, that's not going to lead to a wonderful outcome, I don't think. So I try to assemble everything in a great spirit. And you know what? If, if I'm feeling tired or if I'm feeling frustrated or something, which doesn't happen very often, stop. You know, just take a break. Just take a break because we don't want that on stage with us. Go go for a walk. Get a drink of water and then come back when you have, feel, you know, that there's a smile in your heart and you can go on with, with good with a good attitude. I think that's that's really what is, is important to me. That is incredibly fortifying advice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, you know, I don't think I aspired to have a career like mine. Uh, it just kind of unfolded rather unexpectedly at different stages. So I'm not sure anybody can give anybody advice, but um, I certainly encourage people. And uh, as I was saying earlier about following your gut, we, we all know life is short. We all know those of us who play oboe, almost for sure, we're awfully lucky people compared to all of humanity and the history of humanity. We're very fortunate. You know, we're, we're living in a fortunate time, um, and it's relatively easy. You know, our lives are not in peril and that kind of thing. Probably. So as privileged people, to uh, try to keep our priorities straight and to try to make things as, as wonderful and helpful to others, as, as productive and positive as possible. So I, I think if if playing a musical instrument is something that uh, someone really enjoys and is passionate about, I think that's all you need to know. Uh, and if you just go into every day, you, you, you jump out of bed and you go to the practice room and have a wonderful time um, learning etudes, practicing your scales in a, in a more interesting way, um, going to lessons, learning, reading blogs about music, um, reading books about music, that's, it's all 
vitamins and minerals and, and nutrition that you need and it's getting you ready for the opportunities that are going to come. And you don't know what those opportunities are going to be. You know, you go to school, you don't know what it's going to be exactly. You go to a festival, you don't know. You just, you just, we make it as we go along. And I think what you can do is have a terrific attitude every day. Practice well today. You know, talk to a friend about writing you a piece today. Um, plan a concert at a cafe next week. I, I have the feeling, it's easy for me to say, sitting here with a job, but um, I really do think that if, if someone puts good attitude and passion and a smile and terrific music making out there every day, the world makes a place for you. And usually there's surprises. So I would, I would avoid worrying about the future. There's nothing you can do about it. So why worry about it? And what you can do something about is right now and to be wonderful right now, to, to be a good colleague right now. And then life will unfold uh, and it'll be full of great surprises. Maybe some bad surprises too, but that's okay. You get through them. And, uh, and then when you're, when you're 50 years old, you'll look, look back and someone will be introducing you. And it all sounds like a carefully laid plan. <laughs> <laughs> what a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for joining us today. In closing, I wonder if there's anything coming up that you're excited about that you can tell us about. I'm just so excited about this project I already mentioned with Steve Reich, and it's a collaborative project with the art of the German visual artist Gerhard Richter uh, at the Shed in New York City that's running uh, April, May, and June. And that's a, I believe it's a 37-minute new piece by Steve Reich that we're about to receive any minute now, and um, we're going to be performing. And I've never been to that venue. It's going to be a new experience for all of us. And it's with my friends in Ensemble Signal. So we're, we're doing four performances a day, um, which finish on in, in early June. So um, that's just thrilling on a number of levels because Gerhard Richter is a, is a superstar. Steve Reich, of course, is a superstar. My, my ensemble I love. And it's a brand new venue in New York City. So it's just can't really put words to it. It's really super thrilling and I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful chat. Thank you for coming on Double Read Dish. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Several of you have rated and commented on iTunes, which we appreciate so much. If you haven't yet, go ahead and do that for us. And keep in mind, you can get us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, YouTube, anywhere that you get your podcast, SoundCloud. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And if you want to follow us individually, she is Hello Obo on Instagram, and I'm Wilson Bassoon. Jackie, time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.